Today's reading is taken from Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 to 8, to chapter 8, verse 1, and chapter 8, verses 13 and 14. This is found on pages 8 and 9 of the Bibles. Chapter 7, verse 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wife of his three children, of, of, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah, then the Lord shut him in. For forty days the flood kept coming on the earth, and as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. Every living thing that moved on land perished, birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that moved along the ground, and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Chapter 8, verse 13 and 14. By the first day of the first month of Noah's six hundred and 601st year, the water had dried up from the air. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. reading for us and good afternoon everyone and welcome once again it's great to be back with you uh, for this third ch- Tuesday in a row thanks for taking time from your uh, very busy days I'm sure uh, to be here this lunchtime uh, it's often said isn't it that we must learn lessons of history history repeats itself people say, say and so we need to uh, learn to emulate the success of the past and avoid the mistakes of the past Nicholas Frank is a, a German man in his 70s uh, whose father was Hans Frank, one of Hitler's inner circle. 
Hans Frank was appointed by Hitler himself as Governor General of Poland after the German invasion, and so in the years that followed, was personally responsible for the deaths of millions, in particular millions of Jews. And Nicholas, his son, featured in a BBC documentary a couple of years ago, you might have seen it, called Hitler's Children, in which they interviewed a handful of children or grandchildren of some of the worst war criminals of the Second World War. Now, all of them spoke of bearing this huge weight of guilt. Goering's grandchildren, for example, had voluntarily had themselves sterilised so as to bring an end to the Goering family line. Uh, Nicholas, though, dealt with his guilt in a slightly different way. Uh, He's written two books about his father and his mother, and he spends his time travelling around Germany and speaking to schoolchildren, reading extracts from his books uh, and warning them about the past. He doesn't just want to give them information, he wants to change how they live. Uh, He urges them that they, too, have uh, this capacity uh, to do these things all over again if they're not careful. He has an inherent distrust of his own people, and so he wants to warn them of the danger uh, by telling them about the past. He wants to frighten them, saying, let's not make the same mistakes uh, as were made in our ugly history. It seems to me that this account of the flood in Genesis uh, is an account that ought to have that same effect on us today. It's here in the Bible urging us, don't make the same mistakes as were made in this ugly history of ours. Last week, we looked at Noah, uh, a man who's an example of what it means to have faith. Uh, And today, I I want us to see why that faith, which we said last week was very costly and very difficult, why it makes sense. Uh, Why costly, life-changing faith is not only worth it, but is wise and rational and sensible. When the New Testament writers talk about the great flood in the days of Noah, or or even when Jesus himself spoke about the flood, they spoke about it as real history uh, by which we should be warned and from which we must learn lessons. And I want to focus on two lessons in particular, which take us to the heart of the Christian faith. First of all, the lesson that God will judge just as he warns. God will judge just as he warns. Because up until this point in the story, it's been all talk, really, hasn't it? Lots of promises or warnings or, or threats. Uh, and as we know well, as people in this, uh, these buildings know well, it's all very well talking about something. Uh, but unless you uh, act on your words, then we don't, we don't know whether those words are true or not. And in these verses that we just read, well, stuff finally happens, doesn't it? They are full of drama. Uh, you can see that in the way it's been written as well. The, the elaborate and precise reference to time and date is a way of building up, of pointing to something of great importance and significance. <clears throat> so verse 11, in the 600th day of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. The time has come and God's judgment arrives. And it's terrifying, isn't it, as, you, as we read through? Just allow your imagination to run with uh, some of the images here. The water comes not only from the clouds, but also from the fountains of the great deep. The springs from below and the clouds above. There's a claustrophobic feel to it, isn't it? Water from every direction. 
We in London are used to heavy downpours, aren't we? I'm sure you've been caught in some in, the, in recent weeks. We know how quickly the streets fill with water and, and the water gushes towards the nearest drain pipe. Well, here it's as though the drain pipes themselves are gushing water out into the streets, even as the rain falls. There's nowhere for the water to go except up, and the water level rises with terrifying speed. And it's not just a lunchtime downpour either. Verse 17, the flood continued 40 days on the earth, 960 hours of constant deluge. The waters, we are told, increased greatly on the earth. And you can imagine it, can't you? First, the low-lying areas, the valleys would fill up. Uh, People would clear away from rivers, I suppose. We'd be out of here in no time. And we'd search for higher ground. Uh, Maybe you wait there for a while and until it passes, but but that doesn't really help either. So verse 20, the waters rose and covered, or literally prevailed, over the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. There's nowhere to hide from the waters. And for a while it's a case of sink or swim, but no one can swim for 40 days. It's utter devastation. And the words that are used here are carefully chosen as well. Uh, So twice we are told the waters increase, or increase greatly on the earth. And that's the same word that's translated multiply back in chapter 2. If you remember, mankind was given the job, multiply and fill the earth. But now, since mankind has failed and rebelled in their God-given task, now it's the water that multiplies and fills the earth in, in a chilling parallel. And secondly, there's a word that's slightly lost in our translation. But as we read three times that the waters rose, and then in verse 24 that the waters flooded the earth, in the original, the the, the same word is used all four times there, which is a word that means prevailed. It's a a word from the battlefield, a word of of conquest, of victory, almost personifying the, the waters here and giving them this violent, conquering characteristic. It is a desolate picture where water wins and everything else, everyone else, loses. So it is a shocking, dramatic uh, picture, but it shouldn't be a surprising one. Uh, If you've been here through this series, we've been seeing, haven't we, this is exactly what God promised would happen. He would wipe out mankind and every living thing. And so sure enough, verse 21 Every living thing that moved on the land perished. Verse 22, everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. And just to make that crystal clear, that's exactly the parallel of what we read in chapter 6, where God said, Behold, I'll bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. It's not hard to see the point, is it? exactly what God said, however nasty it might have sounded, however implausible, however scary it might have sounded, is now exactly what happens. That is the most simple uh, but important lesson from this story, surely. It makes sense of Noah's crazy faith. Turns out when God warns us about something, he does it. And so the relevance of this story to us is that we need to learn that crucial lesson. uh, That when it comes to judging the world, God has a track record. He has form. 
And he's done it before. And so when we read the warnings, when Jesus himself warns, as he did more than any, anyone else in the Bible, about a future day when he will come in glory, when he will come in judgment, when he will sit on the throne and all nations will sit before him. Even if that idea is unpopular, even if it sounds implausible or, or scary or unpleasant, even if people laugh at the idea, well, we know it will happen. God, when God says these things, uh, he does them. In fact, we shouldn't even be surprised when people scoff at the idea of judgment, because even that was predicted uh, in the Bible. So Peter writes in, uh, in his second letter, people will say, where is the promise of Jesus' coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is this judgment uh, that you speak of, in other words? And he goes on, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment. See what Peter is saying? We mustn't scoff at the idea of judgment today. And if we do so, we are forgetting that God has judged before. If you doubt what the Bible says about judgment, if you think God would never do that, or God could never do that, Peter says, yes, he can. He's done it before. So we must learn the lesson. But then Jesus himself wasn't very optimistic about people learning the lesson. In fact, he goes as far as to say people will be just as unprepared for his judgment, as they were for the flood in Noah's time. So he says in Matthew 24, As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days, before the flood, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Is that a chilling insight into what life was like at the time of the flood? Uh, Jesus is saying that people were eating and drinking. They were, yeah, they were in Pizza Express. They were having their kind of post-work drinks uh, on a Thursday night, as they always did. They were getting married. They were going to weddings. Uh, getting on with everyday life. Completely unaware until the, the, the rain came. Uh, and the shocking words are those phrases, in the days of Noah, as in the days of Noah, so will it be. In the, day, in the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus is saying we're not very good at learning lessons from history. That in fact most of humanity will have learned nothing from the days of Noah. People will be just as unprepared as they were then. They'll be caught on the wrong side of the door. Something very chilling and final about that image in these verses, isn't there? The door of the ark in verse 16. The end of verse 16. They get into the ark, then the Lord shut him in. That means that everyone else, of course, is shut out. We don't know whether there was banging on the door of the ark. Let us in, please. Let us in. There is a point at which it's too late to try to make peace with God. And so what do we do? Well, for Christians, of course, this should make us cling and cling to our salvation and appreciate it all the more. It should give us a real urgency as we try to tell others about Jesus Christ as well. It's never easy to do that, is it? Uh, If you're anything like me, you always feel like a nuisance. 
when you try and tell others about Jesus. And so we need this reminder, I take it, that if we think that what's really going on is that we don't want people to be caught on the wrong side of the door, so to speak. You're doing the most wonderful thing uh, when you share these warnings. If you're not a Christian today, then please hear the warning. Uh, please do what is necessary uh, to be ready and to make peace with God now. As looking at the talks that are coming up over the next few weeks, the next three weeks would be great weeks to come uh, and find out more about what it means, how you can make peace with God here and now today. So firstly, we, learn, we must learn that God judges just as he warns. But in chapter 6, God said more than just warning of danger, didn't he? He also made that extraordinary promise to Noah. So here's the second, much more cheerful lesson we can learn today, which is that God saves just as he promises. God saves just as he promises. Uh, so God, being good to his word, has this positive side to it as well. We saw in chapter 6, uh, God, yes, declared everything on the earth would die, but then said, but I will establish my covenant with you, Noah. Uh, I will keep you alive. And then we read here in chapter 8, verse 1, but God remembered Noah. In the midst of all this chaos, in the midst of all this devastation, God remembers Noah. And God remembering Noah, it's not that he thinks, oh yes, Noah, uh, I was supposed to do something with him. When the Bible talks of God remembering promises, it's a, it's a way of saying that this is when he acts on his promises. This is when he shows himself good to his words. God had promised that there would be life beyond the flood for Noah and his family. And by the end of our reading today, sure enough, the earth is dry and Noah and his family are still alive. And there is indeed life beyond the flood, life after the flood. And it's God, isn't it, who's been active through the flood to make sure that happens. We see his sovereign supernatural control through these verses. It, it, partly in the way the animals just come and board the ark. I've always wondered about that. How on earth do you do that logistically, uh, getting two of all these animals? We see, they just come. God is the one who's taking care of that all. And then in the way that the door of the ark is shut. Yes, a terrible thing for those on the outside, but a wonderful reassurance for those on the inside. It's God who's sealed them in and who is keeping them safe. God keeps his promise. I'd love to be able to spend much longer on this, this lunchtime. We've heard lots about judgment and destruction. Uh, I'd love to spend a good time marvelling at the, the wonder of salvation as well. But in terms of the material in this chapter, there isn't much uh, on salvation here, is there? And we don't get a detailed account of, of life inside the ark, of the emotions that they went through, of the relief, of how they persevered. But then I realised, actually, that there doesn't need to be much here, actually. All we need is to know that there is life beyond the flood. Indeed, feeling the horror of the judgment, feeling a healthy fear of that, helps the salvation to begin to shine all the more brightly. The bottom line is Noah and his family are alive at the end of this story. And given everything we've seen about the flood, that is amazing. So I wonder whether that... The promise of salvation today often fails to excite us uh, because we don't think much of judgment. Uh, we hide death away, don't we, pretending it'll never happen. 
But we try and silence offensive preachers who dare to mention the idea of judgment. And so it's little wonder that salvation loses its appeal. I suspect if we were to go out onto the streets and ask people how they feel about salvation, most would say, well, salvation from what? I don't need salvation. Life is fine. A judgment, the idea of judgment has become a bit of a joke, hasn't it? It's kind of, it's the territory of the, the madman who walks the streets with a sandwich board shouting, the end is nigh. So no wonder salvation sounds dull and unnecessary to us. No wonder telling people about Jesus feels like an intrusion and a nuisance rather than a life-saving favour. God promised life beyond the flood and he was good to his word. We see Noah and his family standing on terra firma once again and that reassures us. Today the New Testament speaks of of a different kind of flood. Paul writes of how he is the worst of sinners, but then talks of God's mercy hyper-overflowing into his life. And we just uh, sang, didn't we? Or we will sing rather in our closing hymn of fountains opening on the Mount of Crucifixion so that the floodgates of God's mercy open and a vast and gracious tide pours into the world. Jesus offers us life beyond the grave. Now that is the parallel here, isn't it? And I wonder if you believe that. Now do you really believe it? To the extent that you're not actually that afraid of death, because you see it just as a speed bump uh, along the way. Do you believe that the lid on your coffin doesn't stay shut? That you will stand again and breathe again and laugh again? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And as surely as Noah stands on dry ground after the flood, anyone who trusts in Jesus, anyone who leans on him, will live after the grave. So let me ask you, will you learn the lessons of history? And Nicholas Frank may have a point as he seeks to warn his countrymen uh, from their past. But the Bible would say that actually he's underestimating the danger. There isn't one nation that needs to pay particular attention to their past. It's the human race, all of us. And the danger isn't that we'll start another world war, but that we'll be unprepared for the judgment that God has warned us of. And so Jesus came the first time to warn us Uh, to offer peace terms and to secure for us a way to be ready and safe, to secure for us life beyond the judgment. Will you allow me to close with a short prayer? Our Father, we thank you that your word often contains very stark warnings. And we thank you for this opportunity to to look at this uh, ancient story that, so, that still speaks so loudly today. And we pray that you would help us to, to hear the warnings that it gives us. And we pray you would give us reassurance as well of all that it shows us uh, of the salvation that you've promised. And so we pray that we would put our trust 100% in the salvation that you offer us in your Son. And we ask it in his name. Amen.